0: Down to Business with Bobby Kerr, brought to you by Bank of Ireland on News Talk.
1: Now my next guest is a Ted Speaker, an author, and a strategist. She grew up in Milwaukee, but she has lived all over the States. Her book, The Grey Rhino, How to Recognize and Act on the Obvious Dangers We Ignore, was a number one bestseller in China, and a copy can be seen in the office of the Chinese President. How about that? Great to welcome
0: Michelle Wooker to the show this morning. Good morning, Michelle. How are you? Good morning. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Great.
1: Now, we better start with a definition of a grey rhino. And again, this is the subject matter of your book. So would I be right, and maybe I'll make a stab at what a grey rhino is, is it, is it a clear and present danger in a business? Is that a fair description?
0: Absolutely. If you you shut your eyes, imagine a giant rhino on the road ahead of you, pawing, stomping the ground, snorting, getting ready to go. It's big, two tons, is dangerous. It's got the horn and it gives you a choice of what to do. And you might be surprised at how much more likely you are not to deal with it. Than you think, and I invented the concept really as a way to to look at the difference between the people who see the big gray rhino coming at them and do something to deal with it, and the people who don't. And obviously, to encourage people to be more on the side of the people who who deal sensibly with the, the giant gray rhino that's coming to trump on them. Like we've we've got
1: numerous examples of you know stuff that goes wrong in a business that shouldn't have. That was blatantly obvious. You know, you only have to look at, you know, uh, car manufacturers and emissions, restaurants and health scares. There's, There's all sorts of things that you'd say, well, you know, when you look back at it, it's very easy to sort of say, isn't hindsight a wonderful thing? But often an analysis post an event, it's easy to do that, one could say.
0: Yes, and you know, I've, I've actually been surprised at the way people always want to talk about gray rhinos in the past. And you, you, you probably know the black swan, the thing that, that nobody could have seen coming and nobody can see coming that you can only talk about in, the hind, in hindsight. And it's great to use hindsight as a, as a case study or example, but the gray rhinos really meant for taking a fresh look at what's ahead of you saying, what's the gray rhino that's coming at me? Let me be brutally honest about how well I or my organization is in dealing with it. And the gray rhino comes with a strategic framework for figuring out how you can get from the denial stage to actually doing something about it and doing something effectively.
1: Well, let's work on, if we we look forward then, can you give me some examples then of how a business would go about uh, preparing itself for, I suppose, the realization of dealing with a grey rhino.
0: Sure. Well, there's all kinds of them. There are lots of, uh, you know, operational ones like succession planning or, or changes in an industry. And what you do is you look at there. There are five stages, and you start by identifying your, your top gray rhino. What's the big obvious thing in front of you? There's there's nothing mysterious about it. And then ask yourself how well you're doing at dealing with it. Ask your employees, maybe ask your partners, other people, get some objective opinions. The first stage is denial. And usually by the time you're talking about this, you're past the denial stage, But but some other people might still be in denial. There's muddling, which is when you're so focused on the obstacles to fixing it, that you're often a little paralyzed. And it's important to know what the obstacles are so that you can fix them and so that you can get to the next stage, which is diagnosing. That's figuring out what it takes to solve the problem, what resources you need, who needs to do what to solve the problem, what your power is, whether to fix things directly or to influence other people and come up with a a good plan. The fourth stage is panic. And, and I often use that, that great Edvard Munch painting of the screen to illustrate this. It's when everyone's running around going, do something, somebody, please just do something. And it's often the wrong thing. You'll sometimes even have a plan that somebody has made, but nobody thinks to pick up the plan and follow it. And what you want to do is create a sense of urgency before things fall apart. And I've done some workshops where someone raises their hand and says, well, what if you haven't been paying attention at all? And the first stage is panic you really want to avoid that. The, the last stage, which is where you want to be, is action. But it doesn't stop with just doing whatever you've decided you're going to do. It involves tracking and seeing if it's working or not. Uh, my favorite example of this is the the, the new Coke uh, debacle in the 1980s, uh, when Coke decided that uh, they saw that the that, that Pepsi was gaining market share and focus groups were saying people wanted sweeter drinks. And they introduced this new Coke, which was horrible, and people hated it. And it's often told as a story of something that went wrong. But people usually miss the later part of the story, which is that after Coke came out with classic Coke, its brand value surged. And in the end, it did actually gain back market share.
1: And lots of companies, Michelle, have w- would have a crisis plan in place. But am I right in saying that The grey rhino is about how you implement the plan because, again, we've lots of examples of, if we looked at Hurricane Katrina and all the learnings out of that, the the, uh, city of New Orleans had a plan, but they had a plan, but no one implemented it. So there's lots of examples about companies might think they've got best practice because they have a crisis management plan in place, but it's no good if the plan isn't embraced and indeed engaged in.
0: Absolutely. And that's why governance is so important. You've seen a lot of boards since the great financial crisis adding risk committees. You've seen companies since the early 90s adding chief risk officers. But the question is whether that chief risk officer has the power to do something or they're just there. So you can say you have a chief risk officer and you've identified these risks. So it really involves going through the entire company. Cybersecurity is a great example. So many of these cyber attacks are effective because some average employee clicked on a link that they shouldn't have. So so risk management needs to be embedded throughout the organization. Everyone needs to be able to say, hey, this is a problem. It needs to go up to the top. And somebody with the power to do something about it needs to. And and another great example is actually COVID. There was a scenario planning exercise uh, in the administration in 2019. I mean, just, just months before this thing came out and many, many warnings by public health organizations, you know, Bill Gates' TED Talk in 2015, many warnings that the big one's coming, a pandemic's coming, we need to be prepared. And so many countries, and you know, my country is probably the the number one to blame, knew what needed to be done, and they came up with a thousand reasons not to do it. And uh, and so it's really about response. It's it's not enough to just identify the threats in front of you. They're, they're all in front of us, but we need to take a new look at them and really be honest about how good a job we're doing at managing them and what needs to happen to do a better job.
1: Um, we, we talked there at the intro about your, your book being very well received in China, Michelle. Um, is there, do the East and West, do they have different kind of Approaches, I suppose. Looking at this at a high level now, um, do they have different approaches to dealing with policies? As in, that in the East or in China, you know, policy might be much more rigorously adhered to, whereas in some Western companies, it's much looser. Or is, or is that the case?
0: It's such a great question, and I, I've actually explored it more uh, more recently in, uh, in You Are What You Risk, the sequel to The Gray Rhino, uh, which goes into differences all around the world in how we see risks, how risky we think it is to do something to avoid a risk. And I found huge differences, particularly between Asia and the West. And in Asia, people pay a lot more attention to risks. And when you pay attention to something and think about what needs to be done, it hopefully increases the odds that you'll do something about it. And obviously the, the structure of government, the decision-making processes is, are very different. Uh, when you've got a government that can move quickly, uh, it will. But there are other factors as well: uh, social trust, uh, existing cultural norms, like you know, wearing masks in Asia. Is, is much more normal than in the West. And uh, I discovered why when I went to Japan for the first time during cherry blossom season, not having thought about my terrible seasonal allergies, and I really came to appreciate what a great thing masks are at that point. So there are lots and lots of factors that go into how the population perceives a risk, how businesses, how policymakers perceive it, what they do about it, and how all of those... Interact. And it can even be different within a country. There were some studies in the US about COVID responses, and in different states of the Democratic and Republican controlled states, very, very different guesstimates as to how likely it was that you would catch COVID, how likely it was that you would die if you caught it, but also very, very different numbers on who was willing to do social distancing or wear masks or take other measures. And the important thing was how how often you got the message and how clearly you got the message of there's something you can do, you specifically, it's simple, it's easy, and it's effective. And the places where people got those messages in combination with a sensible, clear message about the, the risk at hand Those were the people who did more to reduce the risk. There was a study last spring uh, that The Lancet did that said that social trust was actually the biggest factor in uh, whether you had more or fewer uh, excess deaths because of COVID. So when people trust each other, when people are, are willing to look out for each other, when people are willing to put on a mask, even if they think they have a low risk, those were the places that actually had better outcomes.
1: Yeah. So what's the, I suppose, the lesson that we want to take out of this, uh, this great book, The Grey Rhino? Uh, f- if I'm a business, then I have my crisis plan. You're telling me that's not enough. I now need to make sure that the people in my organization don't neglect, downplay or ignore the grey rhinos that might be in my business.
0: Absolutely. And the gray rhino is useful the way Aesop's fables animals were in making that emotional connection. I mean, my background is in policy and finance. In both areas, you can have all the spreadsheets, the most brilliant analysis in the world. But if people aren't motivated to make a change, if they don't really feel it in their hearts, uh, then they're not going to make the change. And that's why I ask people to, to close their eyes and imagine that grey rhino and really think hard. So it's, it's really about motivation and it's about giving power to the right people, as well as just having the plan, which of course is a very important thing, but it's, uh, it's necessary, but not sufficient.
1: Well, look, it's a fascinating subject. Uh, the book is The Grey Rhino, How to Recognize and Act on the Obvious Dangers We Ignore. Uh, the author, Michelle Wooker. Thanks for joining us this morning, Michelle, and great to talk to you.
0: Likewise. Thank you.